24-0 Dallas, 24-0 Dallas. That means we get a bye in the first round, right, if they win? All right, okay, we're back on track. Oh, go Bears. We have, Josh is from Chicago. Boo hiss, boo hiss. We made Cutler look like a superstar, and that guy is bad. Anyhow, uh, here's the uh, open arms information. They'll be up here if you're interested in that. Um, there are, there should be some offering bags on the seats here on the inside aisles. If you find one near you, pass it to the outside aisles. Make sure they get to the ends. And if you get it on the outside, you're one of our ushers. Thanks for being here. You can hang on to those and bring them up in our closing set of worship. Uh, Time Magazine, December 7th, released their, their most recent periodical. And uh, did anybody see the cover of Time Magazine, this last one? Had the baby on the front with the, the party hat and it said the decade from hell. Did anybody see that? Yeah, Time Magazine um, um, says that the last decade we just experienced was the decade from hell, they say. It was quite possibly one of the worst decades in a, in a long time. Uh, and a lot of people are saying that. I read an article in the Star Trib this last Sunday. A lot of people are talking about this last decade. And of course, you know, it's January 3rd. It's the dawn of a new year, the dawn of a new decade. Let me just recap a few things that happened for you in the last decade. You guys remember Y2K? All right, okay. Y2K was uh, at exactly uh, midnight, January 1st, 2000. An alarm sounded at a nuclear power plant in Japan, and some uh, government officials and computer scientists, they were all freaking out, holding their breath. Uh, was this the beginning of a huge computer meltdown? And, of course, we know that it wasn't. This was an isolated incident, uh, one of a handful, including the failure of about 500 slot machines in Delaware. So that was big. That was big. Uh, the tech stocks, the, the tech boom of the late 90s and the early 2000s, uh, big, big in the in late 90s, and then, of course, early 2000s, totally went in the tank. One of two major stock uh, plunges that we experienced in the last decade. The Dow hit an all-time low at that point, which was like 5,049. I don't even pay attention to this stuff, so if, if that's a number, does that even sound right? Well, it's lower now, I guess. So that was the other one. It's, it's even lower now. It's bad. Let's just, we know that. The presidential election of 2000, do you guys remember this? Bush and the whole Florida fiasco, you know, the one picture of the guy with like the magnifying glass looking at the, the ballot. Bush won Florida by 537 votes. And partisan animosity, which has always been a part of our po political life, was certainly uh, uh, at the forefront and became sort of just normal in everyday political life. Uh, of course, 9/11, September 1st, 2000, or September 11th, 2001, big day. Uh, over 2,900 people died in the attacks of September 11th. Of course, one of those days that will go down in the "Do you remember where you were when?" Right? For me, in my life, I've had two of those. One was the space shuttle. Uh, Krista McCullough, I think she was a teacher from somewhere. I was in fifth grade, Mrs. Rossi's class, watched the shuttle blow up. And this, the other one was, was September 11th. Uh, of course, following that, war in Afghanistan and then in Iraq. Uh, most recent polls or numbers, uh, about over a little under 1,000 people have, American soldiers have died in Iraq or Afghanistan, and over 4,300 have died in Iraq over the course of this war, which, of course, still goes on today. Uh, 2004, December, tsunami in East Asia. That was unbelievable. Over 200,000 people died in a tsunami, earthquake out in the ocean, waves, total devastation. Uh, of course, September, the following September, Katrina hit on our, on our, our soil, and I think it was like 1,800 people lost their lives in Katrina, and of course we know the impacts that's had on, 
New Orleans and folks who have lived down there. I think we've even sent groups down there. Um, in the last decade, corporate CEOs and the whole scandals from Enron to WorldCom to Arthur Anderson to Bernie Madoff, right? He's like the poster child for corporate scandals now, the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. September of 2008 kind of marked the beginning of the whole bank crisis. Uh, you've got Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and the whole sort of put a cap on the economic crisis that we are now in, uh, which includes uh, a, in 2000, the median income of Americans was $5,200, $500, and in 2008, it's actually less. It's $50,300, so it's gone down over $2,000 in eight years. That's not very normal, in case you were wondering. The poverty line, in 2000, 11% of the population lived below the poverty line. That's gone up. Now 13% in 2008 lived below the poverty line. Unemployment uh, went from around 3% to over 10% on average across the nation and is high. Can you imagine living in Michigan? 15.8% of the population of Michigan is unemployed, according to the most recent poll I looked at. It's ridiculous, crazy. 2009 signifies the end of a decade that most of us would like to put behind us and that globally and nationally we would most certainly like to put behind us. But good news, everybody, good news. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news all night. I've got good news for you. The good news is this. The clock has struck 12 and January 1st has come. A new day has begun. A new, a new era has dawned. A new decade is in front of us. And I'm here to announce there's good news for you tonight. Yes! That's awesome! Uh, a decade that's been marked by death and catastrophe and loss and, and war and famine and greed and disparity. Uh, a new decade has begun and a new day has dawned. Now, this news, this particular announcement that I bring to you tonight is really not all that unexpected for us who live in America, right? Because every single year at this time of the year, pastors across the country have series that sound like this fresh start, or new beginning, or a new day, and they get up on you know, the first Sunday in January and say, okay, gang, here's what we're going to do. We're going to reset the clock. We're going to hit the reset button. We've got a fresh start in front of us all over the... And even if you don't go to church, I mean, people in the news are saying this. Time Magazine, for crying out loud, saying, ah, for love, let's put it behind us. We've got a new day in front of us. So me to announce the fact that, you know, January 1st has happened, the clock has struck, is not really all that of an unexpected announcement. And it's certainly not worthy of the phrase, this just in, which is the beginning of a series we're starting tonight on the Beatitudes. Now, this, I want to show you a clip from a movie of an unexpected announcement. Now, actually, I'm not going to show you the clip of the movie. I'm scanning the room, and my Better judgment would say, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and illustrate it to you by way of Micah, okay? Uh, it's a movie called Gran Torino, and uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, if you've seen it, is a, he is a, 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 a racist old man. I mean, it's, it's really bad. And he, ha he has this neighbor, he, uh, he, he uh, lives in a neighborhood where a number of Hmong families move in, and it's, the whole movie is the struggle between this old school, like, you know, a uh, veteran guy who, who lived in America way back in the day and sort of this, the dawning of a new day and, and immigrant families moving in. And it's this struggle between how does this work itself out. He has this prized possession, this Gran Torino, this car. And he has, uh, it's sort of, be, it's, it, it's essentially the, the, the defining piece of, of, this image defines this guy, this character in this movie. His name's Walt. 
And long story short, this young boy uh, who lives next door at, at start tries to steal the car, almost gets shot, uh, but then becomes the friend of Walt and throughout the movie. At the end of the movie, uh, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, well, he dies. Walt dies. <laughs> he dies. And uh, uh, it's rated R, so you really shouldn't watch it anyhow. I'll just tell you about it. Okay. <laughs> He dies, and, 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 and there's this scene that I was going to show you, but there's, there's a couple of things in there that are a little sketchy, so I thought you better not. Um, there's this scene at, you know, the attorney, and all the families gather around. Everybody's there, and, you know, the, the, the brothers, and everybody's trying to sort of like, you know, clamoring for a bit of his estate and some of his possessions, and, his, and especially the Gran Torino. And everybody thinks that this granddaughter is going to get it. She's turning 16. She's learning how to drive. And in this unexpected moment, you know, he, the attorney begins to read this letter from Walt. And uh, long story short, he gives the, the car to Tao, this young, like 16-year-old Asian immigrant who he has come to know and love. And it is an absolutely unexpected... Now, for us, you know, watching the movie, we all know it's coming. You know, it's this beautiful story of redemption and all this other kind of stuff. But for everybody in the room, it's like, what? You've got to be kidding me. Walt? My grandpa, the racist guy, is going to give this car to this kid? Come on! Like, blood's thicker than water, right? It's family first. And everybody in the room is kind of like, you have got to be kidding me. Totally unexpected announcement. It's my conviction and my belief that the Beatitudes in Matthew are a bit unexpected to the people who first heard them. This just in, an unexpected announcement about God and the nature of the kingdom of God comes from this wandering prophetic teacher who's from Nazareth that nobody even knows exists until all of a sudden this groundswell of people start talking about him. So it's this idea, these words, uh, this section of Matthew that we're going to sort of stick our heads into for the next couple of months. And I got to be really honest, I'm really excited about this. I've I've bought a couple new books (laughs) and I've been reading my face off lately. And this series, I I think this is going to be good personally. And and, and if you don't, then I'm really going to enjoy it. And I'll thank you all for coming and and helping and, and being, you know, supporting me. But uh, here's what I want to cover tonight. Um, essentially, I want to introduce uh, the Beatitudes to you, and I want to talk a little bit about where we're going, uh, the nature of the Beatitudes, like really what are they as a, as a piece of literature, and, and how does that connect with the fact that Jesus is the person who's talking, and it's in the scriptures, which we believe to be holy and divine, and all that. Uh, What's the arc of the Beatitudes? Are there any patterns? Are there any things that we should notice? What are the things we should be looking for as people who are reading the scriptures? Things that we could say, oh, I see this, and I see this. What does that mean? Because he's doing that. Is there anything to it? And then I want to end with just, as we study this, here's some things to keep in mind. So the nature of the Beatitudes, the arc, and then... uh, uh, as we study a couple things. So, why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. If you, don't, there's some, if you don't have a Bible, there's some red ones in the seat pockets there in front of you. Just got back from L.A. the other day, by the way. Uh, thanks for letting me go and be on vacation. I missed you all, but it was really nice to not be here last Sunday night. Um, I think it was probably, it was 72 degrees when I boarded the plane in L.A. Uh, the other day, on New Year's Eve day, and it was negative 11 when I got here. That's an 81 degree difference. Thank you very much. 
But spring's really good. Spring's awesome, isn't it? And fall, the colors, you know, in summer, I just love the seasons. That's what, I, that's what we have to tell ourselves, you know. Because the next couple months are going to be brutal. But we're going to be studying the Beatitudes. It's going to be awesome. You guys are going to be so excited to come to church. It's going to just get you right through to, Jan- to March. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. Why don't you stand if you can, and uh, we will read this together. Starting in Matthew, uh, Matthew 5, verse 1. It says this. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because your great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God, as we uh, jump into this series and uh, this endeavor of studying your scriptures, uh, I anticipate, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to what, uh, what's going to happen and the ways in which you're going to show up, the ways in which by your spirit you'll illuminate things for us in our heart and in our lives. Um, God, we want to be open to what you might say. And so uh, we, we collectively and corporately say to you tonight, um, say what you would say to us, God. Speak to our hearts. Open our eyes to see you in a new and fresh way. We pray by the power of your spirit and in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. So the nature of the Beatitudes, really, what are they? Uh, how do you interpret them and how have they been interpreted in the past? The Beatitudes, of course, are the beginning of a major section that Jesus gives as teaching. And so if you're a Bible person, if you're a Christian, what you find in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount make up a large portion of the, of the entirety of what Jesus teaches. So the Beatitudes are up there on the list of things to look at and study and try to understand because they, 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 it, they encapsulate... They, a whole bunch of what Jesus talks about. Now, uh, scholars and, and Bible people alike have, have looked at these passages over the history of, that we've had them and have tried to interpret them in a number of different ways have come out. I'm going to give you mine, but not before. I give you a couple of classic interpretations of how do you read the Beatitudes. One would be the uh, one that rose out of the medieval times. And this was, they would say that the Beatitudes, what we just read, is essentially reserved for clergy and uh, monastic orders. So it's basically the people who are super spiritual, the Beatitudes, I mean, this is some pretty crazy stuff. The Beatitudes are reserved for them, not for the, not for the normal folks. Now, if you know me very well and you've been around Solstice long enough, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that that's pretty much a load. All right, That's not a very good way of interpreting the Beatitudes. Because the whole idea of separating the, the, the clergy or the super spiritual people and the rest of the community is anti-biblical. It's anti-New Testament and it's anti-church, I would say. And we can't get into all of that, but that's the medieval one. Luther, if you, if you remember Luther, uh, he comes out of the whole Reformation deal and he would say that the Beatitudes are essentially um, an impossible demand 
placed on the Christian, which is just like the law in the Old Testament. If you remember, the law in the Old Testament was supposed to drive people to God and was supposed to show them their need for grace. Well, Luther interprets the Beatitudes in the same way. He says, the Beatitudes are a super high demand that no Christian could ever live up to, and it's essentially supposed to drive you to the fact that you can't do it and you need God's grace. Which, if you're talking to me, sounds a whole lot more like uh, he's, in, he's reading it through the, the whole Catholic thing in the Protestant Reformation. Okay? So medieval Luther, Anabaptists. If you know anything about Anabaptists, they would, they're pacifists. They interpret, take Jesus' words very literally. And so they would say, all of these things, literally, we should apply ad infinitum in the public square. Uh, social gospel. Many of you have heard this. It's often connected with liberal Christianity or... Um, uh, sort of uh, a helps kind of an idea. And they would say that this is basically just ethics. It's just a moral uh, teaching, and it has to do with ethics, and it really is void of spiritual or divine authoritative thought. It's sort of just a, something that you can apply across the board, right? Uh, one other one would be uh, something called an inaugurated understanding of the Beatitudes, which is essentially to say that these ethics, they remain the goal of Christian life, but we recognize that we live in a fallen world and that we screw up and we fall short all the time. That's the goal, but we live here, right? And until the consummation of God's kingdom, when Jesus comes back and fully reigns, we won't realize that, or then it will be a realized uh, uh, understanding or ethic called the Beatitudes. So those are just a few different historical ways to interpret them. Here's my take on it, on these tricky little verses. I would say this. It's both an announcement which is very, very different than commands, right? Someone who's commanding, Jesus as a teacher saying, I command you to do these things, right? Blessed are, I command you to be poor in spirit. I, command. I, I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I think it's an announcement. The first four Beatitudes is an announcement about the nature of God and about the nature of the kingdom of God. And the next four, the, the, the last four, are, are a connection or, or maybe a furthering of, this is an announcement about God and the nature of God and, and, and Him meeting you there. And when He meets you there, then you're called as a disciple, as anyone who's in Christ, to then act this way. So I would say it's an announcement as well as a, I would hesitate to even say prescription because I don't want you to think like, oh, well, this is just, we just apply this and then we're blessed or we do this and then we're blessed. That's not the heart of it different than that. Some folks would go ahead and say that's exactly what it is. These are instructions on God, how to get God's blessing, right? Blessed are you if you're poor in spirit, because then the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are you, and so if you want God's blessing, then you have to strive to do these things and achieve these character qualities, or we aspire to these things. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Uh, so these aren't commands on what you need to do to get God's blessing. I think it's an announcement, and it's counterintuitive. When people think about God, when, 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 and people back then in the first century, and even just now, when we think about God, we have certain categories and certain understandings of how God would work, and why God would do this, or why God would do that. And so we have a, a way in which we perceive God. The Beatitudes come on the scene, and they're counterintuitive. They go against the flow. They go against logic about God wouldn't show up there, because that's not God. That's not the way God works. And yet... In the Beatitudes, we see God, uh, an unexpected announcement to unexpected people in very unexpected places. And we'll get to this as we, as we kind of walk through it. Uh, let me illustrate what I mean by this counterintuitive idea. How many of you have been water skiing before? Anybody, any water skiers? A couple of you, you probably didn't grow up here, but okay. Uh, 
Water skiing, very interesting thing, right? You, you've all, or, or you've been to a lake and you've been in a boat and you've watched somebody water ski, right? So you get in, the, you get in, you put the skis on, and you're like sitting there trying to like hold, you know, like balance yourself. And then you say the, 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 the feared words like, hit it, <laughs> which is like, beat me, you know, or pound me into the, you know, stick my face into the front end of these skis is code word for hit it. So you say hit it, and, and the boat starts to pull you, and you realize that their water is heavy, and it's like pushing against you, and you try to like get up, and you fall flat on your face, right? And inevitably, every time, every time, this is great, you get, after you, you, you finally find air again, and you're breathing, and you're floating there, what do the people in the boat say? Just let the boat pull you up. To which you're thinking, that's not helpful. The boat is what put me in this position, right? Just let the boat pull you up. Just, just let the skis do the work. Just let the boat do the work. And you're thinking, that's not helpful. It's just not. Because if I'm supposed to get up on top of the water, I should try to get up on top of the water. But the irony of skiing, and when you do it for the first time and it clicks, you're like, oh, totally get it, right? For, once you, when you haven't done it, there's no way to conceive of it. There's no way to understand that in order to get up and go forward, you need to sit back and stay down. Completely counterintuitive, right? But when you stay back and you stay down, the boat pulls you up, right? And you pop up on top of the skis and it's like, Oh, snaps, that's what you meant. Thank you. Totally counterintuitive, right? In order to go up and forward, you need to stay down and back. Bizarro. That's the nature of the Beatitudes when Jesus says, Blessed are, I mean, look at this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? The depraved, the, those at the bottom of the barrel. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom. What? That's not the way it works. The people who have their stuff together, the people who do the right things, the people who believe the right things, the people who are religious and who perform the religious rituals and all the right things, blessed are them. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? No. Totally counterintuitive. So this is not a list of things that we should aspire to, per se, to gain God's blessing. So there's this unexpected announcement bit, and there's this. I'm coupling it with this discipleship piece of anyone in Christ which kind of leads me to the arc of the Beatitudes. If you were to look at the Beatitudes and you were to start looking at the patterns, so of course you have blessed are, every sentence starts with blessed are, and then there's some sort of descriptor, and then it's some sort of reward, right? So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed, so you have this pattern that goes back and forth. The Greek word that's used there, blessed, is makarios, and uh, it can be translated happy, which is a bit odd, right? Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the downtrodden, the beaten down, the, 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 the low lives. Happy are you, right? Now, it's not like a psychological happy. It's more of this idea of um, uh, you're in a position that affords you God's favor and this idea of God saying, I'm with you, I'm on your side. Blessed are you, happy are you because of that. Uh, some other translations or ways you can interpret it would be fortunate or congratulations, or does anybody know the like, Australian English phrase, good on your? Have you ever heard of that before? It's on the Internet. So I, I looked it up uh, on Googles and Wikipedia, and it's all over. I guess they say this often. I should have asked my Australian, my sister-in-law has a boyfriend who's Australian, but I didn't think about it until now. 
Maybe I'll call him. Good on you. It, it basically means like good for you, right? So that's the word that they're dealing with. And if you were to look at the arc of it, are there any patterns? Are there any things that we notice? There are some things that I would say we should pay attention to. The first four beatitudes and the last four beatitudes. The first four are conditions we find ourselves in. So these deal with places we are or conditions we find ourselves in. And the last four deal with how we then interact with others. Uh, Maybe you could say it this way. The first four are how God meets us. And the second four would be how we then meet others. Or in my own words, or how I would say it, one to four are the places where God meets us. Unexpected, we will find. And five to eight are the places where we then meet others. So the arc of the Beatitudes, if I'm looking at it, is pretty clear. It's this counterintuitive announcement of God's meeting us in unexpected places, and then the call to those who are in Jesus, anyone who's in Jesus, who's a part of this Jesus movement in the world, to, res- to then respond in a particular way. Not because if you don't, you're not blessed, but because it's how you respond when God has met you there. Is as we're studying this passage and these passages, these verses over the next couple months, let me close with a couple of thoughts that these are going to be critical for us to get and understand as we look at these passages. The first is this, uh, and I would call it original context. If we have any hope, any chance of understanding Jesus at all, we cannot take him out of his original context. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, 43 to 45. Matthew 43 to 45. I want to illustrate why this is so important. Uh, you, you've probably heard this before. It's, uh, it says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Within the ancient Near East in the first century, here's why this is so important that we understand Jesus in his, in his own context. Because if we don't, we read a passage like that and we think, oh, okay, Jesus is saying love everybody, love your neighbor, love everybody, love your enemies, right? There was a particular group of people called the Essenes. And the Essenes, there were three, of, three groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, who all lived in Jesus' time. Now, the Essenes were, were an interesting group of people because they were kind of sectarians. You've heard that word before, right? They, 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 they moved themselves outside of the, the, norm, the group, the, 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 the average Jewish person, and they had particular beliefs on what it meant to be holy and righteous and to live a, according to Yahweh. So they moved themselves physically outside of the camp, outside of the city, and they, they became a sect. Now, uh, a, a bunch of scrolls were found very recently. Anybody know what they were called? Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? According to this passage at this point, it's not really all that interesting. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they found something that was in Hebrew, and it was called the Manual of Discipline, and it was connected to this Essene group of people that lived out in the desert. And it essentially said that you should love your fellow sectarians, you should love your brother... But it's, essentially, it's okay to hate your neighbor or anyone who's outside of the circle. It's okay to hate the people who don't follow God. And it, actually, they had, they had uh, um, like prayers that they would say throughout the day that, that enforced this. And Josephus, a historian, also tells us this. So now you start, you start understanding this bit of history and context, 
and you have this group of people who are saying, you should love the people who are close to you, your friends, your, your sectarian brothers, but it's, it is religiously and spiritually okay to hate other people who are outside of your group. Well, now Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you have heard it said. It's okay to hate your brother or your neighbor. But I say, love your enemies. What? I mean, this is like, this would cause a stir. This would get people, you know, uh, in, a, in a bit of a stink because he's changing the rules. He's, he's challenging the things that are said. And if you don't understand Jesus in his context, you miss out on the, 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 the velocity at which this statement is moving and the, uh, the chemical reaction that it obviously caused when he said it. Why, does, why do people get so mad at Jesus? He says these things that are seemingly benign. They're not. They are charged with religious and spiritual and political power. And he's challenging the structures that he finds himself in. So when you understand Jesus in his context, all sorts of things open up. And if we're going to study the Beatitudes, I'm going to challenge us. I'm going to make us try to understand Jesus in his own context because I think it will shed light on all kinds of things that we haven't seen before in the Beatitudes which is why I'm so excited. I feel like I'm charged every week to like go and find the nuggets and then I get to bring them back. So I get pretty excited about this. Um, so study them in his original context. I would say second is this idea of graded holiness. Not graded like grate your cheese, but graded like you failed the test, okay? Grades. Graded holiness. If you were to sum it up, it could be summed up like this. It's the notion that our righteousness, our position before God, how God sees us, our righteousness is essentially mediated by or determined by laws, rules, spiritual rituals, and, and regulations that, that institutions say you should do. So you're righteous if you do these things. You're holy if you do these things. You're righteous if you don't do these things. You're holy if you don't do these things, right? This is exactly the people and the system that Jesus gets so bent out of shape about because of who in the New Testament? Who's he always fighting with? The Pharisees, right? These are people who are pushing graded holiness on the people. You have to do all of these things in order to be holy. You have to do all of these things in order to be righteous. And you have to do all of these things according to this way and that way and this way and that way. And they had a perverted understanding of the law which was never supposed to be this millstone that they hung around people's neck, Jesus says. So their view of, of, of how the thing worked was graded holiness, and Jesus just flips a lid, right? He opens up a can on these guys, and this is the system, this is the ideology, this graded holiness that the cross then obliterates. I find it very ironic that Christians now on this side of the cross, on this side of the Reformation, we still want to go back to that. Graded holiness. You're holy and righteous if you do these things and you don't do these things. That makes you holy or righteous. May I remind you, friends and fellow church people and seekers, that our righteousness, this is, this is like the new, this is Paul. Our righteousness does not have anything to do with that stuff has nothing to do with that. Your position before God solely and fundamentally and only rests on Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. That is it. No, nothing added. 
Your righteousness, your position before God is, is, is on that fact alone, right? What does Luther say? Sola scriptura, sola fide, only scripture, only faith. And yet we, we want to go back to it. And what does Paul say in Romans? He says, there is now therefore no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ. The, law, the spirit of Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. I mean, come on, people. This is the stuff that, that, that Jesus gets all bent out of shape about. And this is this, the context he's speaking into. And yet, when we read the Beatitudes often, that's exactly where we go. We have to do these things in order to be blessed by God. That couldn't be further from the heart of the Beatitudes. So we're not going to do that. It's going to be awesome. Lastly, I would say, this is not, and I will close with this, I promise. This is not an ethical encouragement. I want to be very, very clear about something as we study this passage. Because there has been a dangerous shift and drift that's happened in evangelicalism, especially in America, but globally. And it's often connected to, many of you have heard the word emergent church or emerging church. And I want to say first and foremost that when we dismiss people and, 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 and label them and say, you're out because of this, rewind to number two, okay? And then let's not judge lest we be judged. But there's this, there's this drift that's been happening and I think it's the, the heart of it, the root of it, is, an, a, is a, a misconception and a false understanding of what exactly is here. Because some folks read the Beatitudes, and because of a presupposition that they hold about the Bible, that it's really not authoritative or that it's not God's word, that it's a prophet and a bunch of collection of writings and that kind of thing. And maybe that's, they would never say that explicitly, but that's sort of the, uh, the position that they address the Scripture at. It's not something that's above, over and above us that, that governs how we live as Christians. It's sort of like, hey, it's on this level, right? And so there's this, there's this fundamental misconception of what is here, and so what, becomes, what comes from the Beatitudes is just moral advice, just ethical advice. And I want to be very clear that I believe and we believe as a church that the Beatitudes are not ethical encouragements that can be applied across the board because they possess great moral ideologies. We believe that, and I would argue that what we have here is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, announcing and declaring the profound nature of God and the kingdom of God, this, this new movement that he's ushering in the, into the world, who meets us in unexpected places, and then, by way of his life, death, and resurrection, and his claim to say, I'm the rightful Lord of creation, he says, anyone who calls my name or, or, or uh, would, would call me Lord or bear my name, he calls us to obedience and action. If God has met you here as a Christian, as a Christ one, as a follower of Jesus, when you get here, blessed are you who forgive others because you will be shown. Blessed are you who show mercy, Right? This is how we act in the world. So what we have here is not just ethical, moral things going on. This, is, this deals with Jesus, the Lord of creation, who's saying, God meets you here. And this is the unexpected good news of the gospel. It is mind-blowing when you get into it. But this is where God meets you. And he says, I'm with you. Like, favor is on you. Blessed are you. Good on you, Right? Good for you. you. God is with you there in the most unexpected places. And when God meets you there, then this is how you respond because God has met you there. 
Not because you're looking for some you know, checklist to be holy and righteous. But this is not just moral advice. This is something that is, is, requires us to respond and take stock of who, who do we say this Jesus is and what is this book and what is the nature of this God we are reading about and learning about and seeking to find. So I, I, I got to be honest, gang. I am pumped to the max for this series. So if the series is all about an unexpected announcement, the fact that God meets us in unlikely places, uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to participate in this unbelievable uh, ritual, liturgy, um, command that Jesus gives to us. When he was with his disciples on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he took a cup and he blessed it and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant and it has been written in my blood. And Paul, inspired by the Spirit later in 1 Corinthians, when talking to the church at Corinth, who was acting un-Christ-like because there wasn't unity among the body, because they weren't participating in this meal in in a worthy manner, there were people who weren't getting fed and there were people who were getting slighted and people who were getting good seats in the church at their gatherings. And Paul says, woe to you. That is not the heart of this meal. That's not the heart of this thing we call following Jesus. So he says, when you take communion, search your heart as a person who follows Jesus. Are you at a place where there isn't uh, uh, relational issues between you and other people in the body? And so he says, you need to take it with, with reverence, with fear, with, with respect, but you do it with joy and with a, excitement because this is a meal that connects us to and puts us in touch with and reminds us of the gospel that Jesus has come and he has died for you and for me. And he says, anyone who wants to come to this table and follow me, do so. And so he meets us here at this table. For some of us, very unexpected people, right? Screw-ups, people who drop the ball, people who maybe wouldn't be the first on the top of the list as likely candidates for God to meet. And yet, this is the gospel. And so we're going to close, we're going to sing some songs, and uh, I'm going to pray. And uh, when I close in prayer, that'll be your invitation to just come, take uh, some of the bread and dip it in the cup. You can come as individuals, you can come as families, come at your time and your leisure in the next couple of songs here. Um, But as we do so, this is all worship. Worship isn't just singing. Worship isn't just, you know, preaching at church. What we're doing tonight is worship. And so as you come with that in mind, I invite you to come and participate in this meal with us. So let me pray. God, we are uh, so grateful for um, the ways in which you meet us. Um, I pray that, God, as we enter into this study, that you would just blow the doors open. God, that all of our preconceived ideas of who you are and the ways in which you work and the people that you would meet and that you would say, blessed are you. I pray that you would just blow those out of the water. God, I I pray that people would find you. I pray that people would know who you are and that they would learn to love you and follow you. That's my heart and my prayer. So God, as we worship you tonight and we participate in this meal. Thank you for the reminder that it is that you've, you've come, that you are Emmanuel, you are with us, and you have paid
paid a price that we, were, we deserve to pay. And you've taken it upon yourself and said, I will own it and I will take it to the grave and I will be victorious over death. Evil's worst enemy and, and worst thing it could throw at us. And yet you've said, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? So God, we worship you. Our hearts are overflowing with joy and of gratitude for who you are. And uh, we participate with respect and, and uh, gratitude, but also with joy and exuberance that you are here among us and that you have announced good news to the world. We pray in your name.